I often speak about the difference between content and container. A container without good content is meaningless and content without good container is useless. And so the very difficult job of building a successful company is to actually do something that has meaning, but actually do it well. And to be moving towards not taking pride in breaking things or taking pride in a kind of over-fertilized growth rate, but building a sustainable, scalable, repeatable business such that what gets broken are the rules in the industry that you're trying to disrupt, not the people and not the rules of governing running a good business. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Here's a story to break your heart. I have a client who is an amazing human being, who I adore. She's brilliant and talented and driven, genuine. And she has poured all of herself into her company over the last five years. She gave up a lot to start it. She went against the objections of those who cared about her, including her parents and especially her mom. And she went after her dream, something that was close to her heart. She worked so hard. She's given so much and she's overcome so many challenges from just a really difficult investor to copycat competitors, unethical colleagues, a global pandemic, and then everything else that comes with building a company. She has truly given her all in service to a vision, to a dream. And yet now, after five years, this company, it's on the edge of dying. The company will likely fail. She's tormented by what remains, the heartbreak and the questions. What more could I have done? Why did this fail? What if this is my fault? What if this is proof I can't do this? What if this pain, what if it never goes away? I personally have been part of at least four failed ventures and it never gets easier. It never gets easier to give up the dream of what could have been. It never gets easier to walk away from the people, the work, the ideas you pour your heart into. You know, intellectually, we know that failure is good. It can be a teacher. We praise those who are willing to risk it in pursuit of a dream. We tell them that, hey, you know, you'll be better off in the long run because of this experience. But I can't tell my client that now as I watch the tears stream down her face. Because when we're in that space, in the midst of the failure ourselves, it's really hard to feel anything but heartbreak. I remember when I was there, I couldn't feel anything but the pain and the grief and the fear the business was broken because I was broken. The business failed because I wasn't enough. When we are the thing, when we put our whole selves into a thing, the good news is so, so good. And the bad news, ooh, is it bad. And then failure, a failure feels like death. But here's the thing to remember. Businesses fail, but people grow. Business models can be broken, but people are whole. My client is not a failure, but her business failed. My ventures failed, but I am not a failure. And in reminding myself, reminding her, and reconnecting with our wholeness and our humanness, we do and will grow from the experience. 
We do become better people if we allow it. But the questions can still linger. What else could I have done? You can learn from that. Why did my startup fail? You can learn from that too. So why do startups fail? This question also nagged at Harvard professor Tom Eisenman. So he set out to answer it. And after a multi-year research project, he actually found six distinct patterns that account for the vast majority of startup failures. The result is his incredible book, Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success. In this conversation with Jerry, he breaks down what he learned in his research, shares stories of company failures, including one that they both have a personal connection to. They talk through the six distinct patterns that result in the majority of startup failures. Now, his book shows us and tells us that not only can we work to avoid some of those failures, some of that heartbreak, but it's also a reminder we can survive it. Enjoy. It's been a tough season for leaders, not to mention the world at large. Some parts of the world are shifting back to pre-pandemic ways of life, while others continue to deal with the challenges and restrictions that time has brought. Regardless of context, many of the folks we work with continue to deal with exhaustion and burnout. And for those returning to some semblance of normalcy, the challenge of moving beyond a year's worth of trauma are harrowing. Once again this fall, the Reboot team will be facilitating a virtual retreat designed to help leaders reset, reconnect with themselves and others and build inner resilience. Join us this November for a unique experience that combines remotely facilitated time in nature, resilience practices, coaching exercises, and fellowship with other leaders doing their best to lead with grace, strength, and authenticity. You will leave with a greater awareness of your personal leadership habits and strategies for being the leader you want to be. To learn more or apply, submit a scholarship request for the Reboot Weekend. Head to reboot.io slash weekend. Hi, Tom. Hey, Jerry. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself to us? So I'm Tom Eisenman. I'm a professor at Harvard Business School, where I teach entrepreneurship and lead a bunch of programs that train the next generation of entrepreneurs, a, a joint degree between the business school and the engineering school. The business school has an entrepreneurship center called the Rock Center, so I'm faculty co-chair there. And Harvard University overall has the Innovation Lab. I'm faculty chair of the Innovation Lab. And I've, I've um, launched a bunch of different, helped launch colleagues, um, a bunch of different courses on entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial marketing, a product management course, and, and most recently, a course on failure. And I had the, the real pleasure of now being a, a guest in two cohorts of that course. Yeah, that's right. And uh, thank you for that. Oh, well, it was, it, it, as I said, it was really a pleasure for me. We, we bring you in at the end. Um, it's the course starts off like a lot of things in an MBA program, all focused on analysis and business model flaws. And it ends all focused on people and leadership issues. So uh, you were the perfect capstone. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And we're actually here to talk about your new book, uh, Why Startups Fail. And uh, I got my copy a few weeks ago and I was very excited and tweeted out uh, a picture of my highly mocked up version of the book. Um, I'll say a couple quick things, you know, even going beyond my career as a coach and going back to my years as a venture capitalist and even beyond that, back to 
my years as a reporter in the technology sector, I've been really tracking this whole question of the life and death of startups and what it actually means both, you know, clearly those who know the show, know the work that I do as a coach, know that I am particularly interested in the emotional aspect of the journey. Um, as you've heard me say time and time again, I'm really interested in the human side of leadership because I think that's essential to creating great leadership. But this was a fun experience for me because I think you, you approach the whole question of why startups fail about as analytically as I've seen and really evidence-based. And so I'm gonna put you on the spot. You've probably had to do this several times for podcasts so far um, in, in talking about the book. If you could identify one particular theme, uh, why do startups fail? The glib answer is they uh, run out of cash and can't raise more. <laughs> right. um, the reasons sort into early stage failure reasons mm -hmm. and late stage. And um, that was a surprise to me. It, you know, I, I had a sense that a lot of late stage startups would get into trouble and boy, they do. You'd think they'd be out of the woods after finding a market, mobilizing a team and raising a lot of money and so forth. But they still, if the definition of failure is uh, investors don't make money, I think that's one definition. And so I think it's a pretty good one. Then something like one in three late stage startups fail. Late stage is as defined by a company having found product market fit, launched yeah, a product, exactly. and exactly. even raised capital and generating revenue. Right, product market fit and, and scaling, um, mm -hmm. but still not all the pieces in place, right? At a certain point, you, you question whether something as big as Uber or Dropbox these days is still a startup. I, I don't think so. It's, mm -hmm. it's a young corporation. Uh, but if you focus in on the early stage, the big one is a failure pattern in the book I call a false start, um, just like track and field or swimming where the athlete sort of gets going too fast in an effort to get an edge and um, gets called out for it and penalized. Here, the entrepreneur in their zeal to build and sell with the entrepreneur's bias for action gets going as fast as they can. And what they've done is they've skipped an upfront step of, of really um, studying the market, studying the customer, figuring out, is there an unmet need? And do I have the many ways to solve it if I have indeed found an, uh, a strong unmet need? Do I have the right solution? You know, the, the, these entrepreneurs got a vision burning bright and they just go for it and are, are fixed on a problem solution pair and dive in. And, you know, if you just launch the thing. Sometimes it works. Very often it'll miss the mark. And if you've only raised a year's worth of capital or 18 months worth of capital, and you waste the first four months on a flawed version of a product, that if you'd only spent four weeks sort of in, in upfront work, um, that's tragic. And, and so the, so these companies have really boosted their failure odds. And so I'd say that's uh, that's a big one. And, and a close cousin is, is another failure pattern called a false positive. Just like um, pandemic time, in medical testing, uh, entrepreneurs are vulnerable to false positives and false negatives. False negative is tragic. It tells you you don't have a good idea. You throw in the towel when in fact it might have worked. I will never know. The false positive is um, uh, you think you've got something great and you dive in head first and, and, and probably scale it up prematurely. 
And that happens often because there's you know, there's almost always some foaming at the mouth, crazy early adopter out there that wants what you have. And it can be a mistake to sometimes they're power users with very different needs than the mainstream customers you need to, to build a, a successful business. And if you steer too hard in the direction of the early adopters, you know, again, you can overcommit in that direction and it's time consuming and expensive and tricky to, to try to come back to the mainstream. So good uh, example, I think, of a false positive might be a company that takes uh, some early adoption signaling, uh, some some quick uh, buildup of a user base, um, but not really having completed the product definition or, or really the value proposition. Mm -hmm. And the result is that they, they have an enormous amount of attention and they burn a little bit like a meteor across the sky, a like comet, that. right? And then they burn out. Am I yeah. getting that right? Yeah, the line from Blade Runner, the light that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. I love it. Um, mm. That's it. Yeah. And there are different ways. Um, you can focus too much on the early adopters and never really understand that the mainstream needs are different. Sometimes the mainstream needs are similar, but they're just softer, weaker. Mm -hmm. and, and you assume that the enthusiasm, the word of mouth referrals, everything that, that, that gave you so much momentum in the beginning is going to sustain itself, raise a lot of money, step on the gas, and the next wave of customers turns out to be harder to get. Uh, you know, I'm having all this, uh, all these painful flashbacks to when I was an investor, and we had plenty of companies that had all this promise that that you know amassed a tremendous number of users, only to just flame out uh, because they really hadn't solved some fundamental problems. Um, uh, I'm also uh, picking up on the the false negative narrative which I really hadn't, until I read the book, hadn't really thought it through. And, and in that instance, I'll actually name a company that uh, back in my days as an investor, Fred Wilson and I invested in, um, and it was called Cosmo.com, K-O-Z-M-O. The, the, the plan with Cosmo was you could order kind of anything from a convenience store, from videotapes back in the day when we would actually watch movies on videotapes to ice cream, sometimes maybe even some illegal stuff. No, I'm kidding. And a bike messenger with a bright orange uh, bag would go get the product and deliver it. It's kind of was Postmates before there was Postmates. It was DoorDash before there was DoorDash. It was, you know, Uber Eats before it was Uber Eats. So yeah. And, yeah. and the astonishing thing is there's plenty of success with the companies you just named. And this was essentially the same, because I agree completely with you. There's a lot of false negative there and false positive because the false positive, the early success and appeal led a whole bunch of money to pour in, including money, not only your money, but money from Amazon. Right. And uh, so the, the listeners who, um, who are intrigued by the story, there's a documentary uh, and it won't be hard to find. I remember best, I, I used to use this quote in the year 2000 timeframe when I'd give a, a, a lecture on what was going on. People are trying to make sense of the internet economy. And it was an article on the young barons of, of the dot-com boom in Vanity Fair, which mm -hmm. um, still important today, was more important culturally then. And, you know, with the full page images of, of the founders and Joseph Park, um, who was a founder of Cosmo, who had 
he, he was out of college, had been an analyst at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years and watched this thing like, like so many entrepreneurs in those days. He was quoted in Cosmo. I can almost get it exactly. It's basically, look, um, we've raised a quarter of a billion dollars. Um, what's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is I lose it all. Uh, and then I have an amazing application for Harvard Business School. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been 2000. I'm sure the article appeared like right at the peak, right before the crash. And um, in 2004, he showed up in my classroom and there he was. Um, he, he called it, he called it self-fulfilling prophecy. Maybe I've got my own Joseph story and Joseph, if you hear this, it's been a long time and we miss you. Um, but uh, uh, this was back in the day before we invested. Um, I was doing a lot of public talks and, and uh for about six to nine months, every time I would do a talk, there was this young guy, the same guy would be sitting right in the front row. And as soon as the Q&A period would begin, the hand would go up and it was Joseph. And um, the thing that struck me about him was that he was um, not only prescient, but he was persistent. And, uh, and, you know, you could argue, okay, maybe it was an overreach, you know, and that statement about $250 million is, you know, a bit of an overreach. And, you know, there were a lot of things that they did wrong in terms of the execution. But we're both talking about, in effect, a, a, a really interesting, if you could remove the, the, the tragic aspect of it, right, the personal story, and you sort of take a step back and you say, okay, there's a lot in that story um, uh, around what worked and what didn't. And we were talking about false positives and false negatives. The false positives, I think, were the tremendous amount of adoption and the interest in it. Um, and what we didn't realize at the time was that people were just doing it as a gimmick watch, let me order a pint of ice cream. And 45 minutes later, some bike messenger would show up with a pint of ice cream. This, by the way, was all before mobile apps were the dominant way to do things. Um, and what we weren't really tracking was the cost of each one of those deliveries, right? And, and here's another example of it. I remember the, there was a perception of needing to grab land, the great land grab. So we're gonna expand very, very rapidly into a lot of different markets. Um, and I think that, that to use the language from your book, it was a false positive that led us to make uh, uh, a belief system or to make assertions about how the, to scale the business inappropriately which then glossed over the false negatives that we saw, which were when it started to collapse, which was, wait, people are actually interested in the delivery. It's just how we're going about doing delivery wasn't the right way. Am I seeing that right, Tom? Yeah, I think exactly. I, I, I actually, um, I can't remember the name, but um, I recently spoke to somebody who was a manager there and uh, he 
pinned the tail right on the same donkey, basically said New York City was working pretty well. Mm -hmm. And if they had just fine tuned it in New York City, so it got to the point where the individual transactions were profitable, sort of had ways to sort of get past the fat element and so forth, and, and had focused on that, that it was the, the rampant geographic expansion that killed the company. And, and it's just so many humans you have to mobilize to, to run a business like that and, and to try to do that quickly, yeah, delivery folks and then have the systems to manage them and, and dispatch them and so forth. I mean, tremendous challenge. You know, one of the things that I that I see in that tale, and you, you do a wonderful job talking about the tale of Fab, for example, Jason Goldberg, whom we both know, and uh, Rand Fishkin talked about his experience at Moz. One of the pieces that I that I didn't feel, and maybe because I'm an old VC, didn't feel that you that that you really went deeper in was the the degree to which the investors were driving some of these decisions. For example, uh, if I think back about the expansion of Cosmo, um, mm -hmm. I remember I wasn't on the board, but I remember when they got the investment from Amazon from Jeff Bezos, it was, um, it was with the intent of expanding rapidly. Right. You know, what effect does that, let's call it super enthusiasm on the part of investors have mm -hmm. in driving some of this? Yeah, it's tricky. So I, I think you're right. I think the book doesn't punch that up quite as much as it deserves. It comes through very strongly in the course. So, so uh, yes. the course is the course is built around many of the same stories that are in the book and more. And in almost every instance, um, so, so your listeners will know that our business school is structured around case study. So um, we study a company, talk about it, and and. Um, with this course, I always bring the failed founder into class and let the students interact with the founder right from the start. So, um, why and and could you have done things differently? And over and over again, the students see that the business felt a lot of. I'm going to use passive voice or or, or mm -hmm. sort of not not very deliberately. There was a lot of pressure to grow mm -hmm. fast, and what the founder usually says is. I didn't have my arm twisted. They didn't make me do it. It was surely clear they loved the idea. And then the founder will go on to explain that the business model of venture capitalists is if you have a portfolio of 60 companies and three of them earn 10 or 20 or, you know, in a great, great year, 100 times the original investment, you know, and 30% sort of make the money back, you know, or double or triple. By the way, doubling over 10 years is not that great an outcome, you know, if you could put your money in the bank. Um, and then the rest of them will um, lose most or every, or, you know, everything. And, and if you have a model like that, you need all 60 of them to have the potential to be a tenfold return. So basically, VCs are in that as you were in that business. They're all in that business. And um, it's sort of understood with a founder that um, don't take this money unless you're willing to sign up for that plan. And most entrepreneurs, I think, in truth, don't need their arm twisted, right? Growth is how a lot of entrepreneurs keep score. So they, they tend to come along. But it's only after the fact that I think they see how risky that is. And basically, you know, to use maybe cliche baseball analogies, they're being asked to swing for the fences. And when you do um, try to hit home runs, you strike out a lot. 
And it's one thing for a VC with a portfolio of, of 60 companies to have a bunch of strikeouts, but they'll have the home runs. Entirely different thing for the entrepreneur who only gets one shot or at least one shot at a time uh, to do that. And, and so a lot of these entrepreneurs in the class uh, basically, and, and Rand Fishkin at Moz would be a great example. You know, no one twisted my arm, but I would not do it again. Is is the way he approaches. And it's really very eye opening for my students because, you know, at at elite business schools, basically we lionize venture capital, right? You, you, you they're heroes, and you assume if you're an entrepreneur coming out of Wharton or Harvard Business School, or Stanford, that you're going to raise venture capital, and and and, and so we see examples of people that probably shouldn't. There's lots of other ways to fund a business out there. And uh, probably more entrepreneurs should be looking at those other ways. I want to lift up that point. I'm so glad that you you talked about that lionization. I think that that correlates to another phenomena that I experience, which is that um, is the belief that completion of a venture round is, in fact, a marker of success. And you're nodding because, you know, there are way too many tales of failure after having raised capital, right? I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, it's worse in the sense that not only completion of the round, but completion of the round at a high share price, at a high valuation, is seen as a marker of even greater success, right? You know, Mm -hmm. we're a unicorn now. I think too few entrepreneurs stop to think about the fact that, yeah, that was series C, uh, but you're almost certainly going to need a series D. And, and unless D is a one and a half times or two times step up from C, you're in big trouble. If it's sideways or God forbid down uh, uh, in terms of the share price, all sorts of bad things happen. You know, employees wonder about the value of their stock options, the, the, uh, the, the tech press, um, starts to second guess everything and can unravel really fast. So, you know, the higher the valuation in the current round, the more you're just setting the hurdle even higher the next time around. For, for so many businesses, the way you reach that next hurdle is you keep growing. And growth turns out to be really, really hard to do profitably. You can raise a lot of money and grow unprofitably, but sooner or later, this is a game of musical chairs and the music will stop and people will see that there's a chair missing. You know, the, the the thing that occurs to me is that there's a correlation between uh, the the that non-arm twisting pressure that in some ways begins with the student in the MBA program, right? Uh, the lionization of the VC. There's also a correlation of a lionization of the successful entrepreneur right, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, the Elon Musk of the world, and the belief system that that is the path, right, and you put those two things together, then you get this sort of um, uh, growth factor, um, and you have an increase, in my view, an increasing tendency to either false negatives or false positives or both, as we talked about in, in, in the Cosmos story. Uh, I want to I want to use a phrase with you that that is really popular, uh, uh, and just sort of see how you react to it. Move fast and break things. Mm-hmm. You're smiling. I'm smiling because um, one of my former students is now the founder and CEO of 
Cloudflare, which boy, um, I, I'll uh, I'll bask in that sunshine all day long. A thirty billion dollar valuation. If if folks don't know the company, it's uh, plumbing for the internet. Makes the internet go faster and be safer. And uh, Matthew Prince uh, just tweeted out our our motto is move fast and fix things. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It can be the excuse for sloppy. And, uh, you know, an entrepreneur must, of course, have a bias for action, right? That's that's a big advantage, um, moving fast. And you have to have a tolerance for failure. That's breaking things. So, uh, you know, on the surface, the motto seems, seems right in tune with everything that makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur, a tolerance for failure and, and, a, and a bias for action. The thing I worry about is is it is conventional wisdom, and so so much conventional wisdom that we give to entrepreneurs is mostly right and or or right um, enough of the time that it feels good. But you know, I, th- I think the bias for action is is a good example. That's what leads to the false start. You just want to get going, right? The, mm-hmm. Your image, your your self, your identity as an entrepreneur is somebody who makes things happen. So let's let's build and launch the product. And, and, and I think um, move fast and break things is the same. It's, um, you know, you know have, have you thought through the consequences of breaking things? Because in a lot of these businesses, like a lot of tech businesses are are, um, are are screwing up society in some pretty fundamental ways. It, did, did you actually have your objectives in mind so, so you know the difference between success and failure? Are you viewing this as a as a test or an experiment, or is it just willy nilly, um, you know, action for the sake of action? You know, I I, I agree with that, and I'll build on it um, with with this. You know, one of the concerns I have about the phrase, the the, the mantra, the call that's implicit in that, is that um, it's almost like the two sides of that are equivalent, meaning do this and do this as opposed to do this and don't worry about this. Right. Right. And I think what you're really saying in the tolerance for failure is move fast. Yes. Don't be so worried about breaking things, but make sure you fix the things that you break. Um, And I, and I say this with, with the bias that too often it means move fast and break people. Mm-hmm. And not just things. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know, I come from a particular bias, which is um, I often speak about the difference between content and container. And I say that you know, a container without good content is meaningless, and content without good container is useless. And so the very difficult job of building a successful company is to actually do something that has meaning, but actually do it well. Yeah. And, and, and to be moving towards not taking pride in breaking things or taking pride in, in a kind of over-fertilized growth rate, but building a... Uh, a, a sustainable, scalable, repeatable business that uh, that such that what gets broken are the rules 
in the, in, in, in the industry that you're trying to disrupt, not the people and not the rules of governing running a good business. Yeah, it resonates so well. This this morning, I actually had a conversation with a former student. She um, had done a lot of work in Silicon Valley in performance marketing, growth, growth team mm-hmm. stuff in startups, and now is doing corporate venturing. She's, she's, uh, she's sort of moved over to a big company trying to do entrepreneurial stuff inside. And we're talking about some of the differences in failure patterns for a, a venture capital backed startup versus the, a venture inside a big company. And it's hair raising stuff. Um, it's it's hard enough to do a startup. It turns out to be very hard to do venturing inside a big company. Um, but one of the things she said was fascinating. She, she, so I asked her, like, are you happy in this role? Um, she says, it's probably moving slower um, where you live. She said, yeah. But she talked a little bit about the impact you can have in a big when it works in a bigger company. You, you, you know, you're reaching tens of millions of people pretty quickly. And, you know, you run an A-B test and, and it has real impact. But she said something else, which is, you know, when, when I was an employee at these Silicon Valley companies, it was growth at all costs. I was in, on the growth team, so I was the linchpin and there was tremendous pressure on me. And frankly, these young founders did not care. You know, I either delivered or I was out or useless. And she said, there's just, there was no attention for my growth, um, you know, as, as I drove growth. And they just wanted to, to grow the business at all costs, all costs, human costs. And she said, it's very different in a big company that, that uh, the team she works with, the employees have objectives personal growth objectives, people pay attention to that. And there's much more of an emphasis on, on personal development, professional development. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was pretty eye-opening for me, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would never have thought that the experience at a large company could be uh, that humanizing in that way. So I'm really pleased to hear that. And, and which then sort of leads me to what would be a classic reboot podcast conversation, which is let's talk about the human cost mm-hmm. of this experience. Um, and, and, you know, in this way, I'm going to, I'm going to call upon not only the, the, the research that you put into the book, but really your experience over the years of working with these students and working with folks and really observing this with, yep. with your eye. What is the cost of failure? Well, it plays out over time. There's the cost of failing. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it actually surprised me as I dug deeper in, into the stories that inform the book, how protracted that is. You'd sort of think it's like, oh, well, we're okay today and next week we're not, we're gonna shut it down. But the decision to end the company, to shut down the company plays out almost always over weeks and, and more typically over months, because there's always ups and downs and you know we can see what we wanna see. And um, people are depending on me, the founder. They get their medical benefits for this person's having a baby and, and, um, and you know that's how, she, how she's gonna keep the family together. And these investors had faith in me. And, and, and so people count on me, my image as an entrepreneur is somebody who persists my identity is all wrapped up in this thing. It's going to hurt when I fail. I sort of know that either consciously or subconsciously. So if I can push it off for a while, I can defer the pain. And in so many instances, I have nobody to talk to. I can't talk to my investors because I need a bridge loan from them. So if I'm super candid with them about what a mess this is, um, I may not get that extra funding 
that I'm hoping that we get a, a Hail Mary pass. And um, I can't talk to my employees. I can't even be as transparent as I'd like to be. You know, so not only do I not get advice, but I sort of bottle it up. Maybe I'm lucky enough to be in a peer group, a YPO or something like that, where I can get some peer counsel. My, my personal relationships are in a tatters. Um, my, my friends um, are used to me not being there because I'm working 70 or 80 hours a week. And, you know, and, and, and my spouse may be fed up with me. So, you know, that's not a great a great shoulder to cry on or even just sort of good source of advice. So it's it's bottling up all this pressure. And we try to sell the company. And that's, boy, talk about false positives. Everybody wants to see it. Why wouldn't your competitors want to see what's going on inside your company? So they all talk to you and they kick the tires and they string it out. And, and you get the false hope that it's, this is actually going to be salvation. Um, when it turns into aqua hire discussions, and it gets really painful because you find out they're not going to take the whole team and they're sorting out winners and losers. And this team you've built is, is suddenly... So, so the failing process is incredibly pressure packed and painful. And, and you're just trying to figure out, is it time to throw in the towel? And if I do, am I a terrible entrepreneur? Eventually they do, you do. And what I've learned from founders is that's incredibly cathartic, right? To actually, I mean, and it sets off a flurry of activity. We got to notify all the stakeholders. We got to find home for the employees, we've got to put assets in, you know, money in escrow to sort of, and, and there's this whirlwind of things you have to do that keep you too busy to ruminate on the failure. But eventually it dies down and, and the employees have all left and you're sort of, for a period, often weeks, sometimes months, just the slow tail end of the company. Uh, and that's when uh, I think very often uh, true clinical depression sets in. Right. Because this person or an entrepreneur, your identity is often the company and, and vice versa. The company is you. You are the company. It failed and it's inescapable to to you. There's no other conclusion you can draw. Then you a big part of you has failed. And so um, it hurts. And then, you know, I think the smart entrepreneurs at this point, and by the way, sometimes they put life savings into it. If you don't have a spouse who's working or, or family means to sort of get you through, you're under this, you get student loans due in a lot of instances. So you're under tremendous financial pressure. You're under weird personal pressure because it's not exactly human nature to sort of go rev up your relationships again. They're like, hey, let me tell you what just happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, so a lot of founders will go into hiding, uh, which only makes it worse because it sort of reinforces the cycle of rumination. And um, um, the, the smart ones will find some distraction, a, a new hobby, exercise, something to alternate between rumination, which is inescapable, and distraction. And so what I've found, and, and so it's a, it's a very painful period, you know, then again, it's weeks, months, it varies. You then go into a less painful period of reflection. And not everybody gets there, right? So my class, I've oversampled on entrepreneurs who are actually pretty thoughtful about what happened um, because I think there's more to learn from them. But, you know, out there, there's these two extremes of, of entrepreneurs who um, in psychology, the, the, the like psych, psych 101, freshman year of psychology, one of the first things you learn about is the fundamental attribution error, which is if you did something bad or or, or having a mistake, um, it's it's your lack of ability or, or or will, desire, motivation. If I made the mistake, since it's me, um, it must have been external circumstances or somebody else who dropped the ball. 
And so many entrepreneurs slip into that pattern, right? They blame their co-founder, they blame their investor for pushing them too hard. The regular regulator did something surprising, the comp competitor did something irrational. And those founders haven't learned much and they're likely to sort of get back on the horse and sort of ride the horse over the same cliff one more time. At the other extreme are people that just keep beating themselves up too hard and take too much responsibility temperamentally and by skill ill-suited for the founder role. I should never do this again. So the pain, I think, starts to go away either because you've rationalized it away incorrectly or because you've truly reflected and sort of wrapped your head around it. And then you have this tricky question of what to do next. Sometimes all that's compressed into just literally weeks because you're running out of money and you have no savings. Sometimes it stretches out over six months. You know, thank you for that. And I'm sitting here thinking that the next time I come to the class, maybe what we do is we have a, uh, a class, we, we have a conversation on grief and the grieving process and, yeah. and, and the post-failure process. Because, um, you know, one of the things I think you're doing that's really important is having a cogent, coherent, normalizing discussion about failure because you cannot be an entrepreneur unless you have the capacity to see the potential of failure. Failure of the enterprise is not a failure of me. But a corollary to that is to, is to teach people how to withstand that experience. And you know, in, in, in my experience, the people who have the greatest sense of an inner sense of self, the greatest sense of being able to see the intrinsic things that motivate them separate from the extrinsic sources of motivation, whether it's good grades in school or high marks in TechCrunch or the right valuation from the right VC, those people can separate those two are the most likely to be able to fit into that category we call resilient and able to figure out the next thing that I want to do, whether it's a startup or not, after the yeah. failure. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope we can do that next time you come. I mean, it's it's sort of come so front and center for me. The, the course has just been a half course, it's 14 mm -hmm. sessions. But um, I, I found a co-founder, um, one of one of the failed founders. You'll know her mm -hmm. from the book, the um, Baru, um, Lindsay mm -hmm. Hyde, um, the um, uh, founder. Baru was a, a pet care service. And um, uh, Lindsay and I will make it a full course. And the entire back half is going to be focused on how to fail, basically, oh, the, the personal experience. And we'll stretch it out and, and explore every angle. What do people do next? How do they present themselves? I mean, it's fascinating if you actually find the LinkedIn profiles of, of a lot of failed founders and sort of see how people talk about what happened and, mm -hmm. or don't talk about what happened. That's interesting. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and the truth is, I think that they will be better entrepreneurs by having a healthier, non-lionized view of what venture capitalists, what investors can do. Tom, I want to thank you for coming on the show, but more important, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, in some ways, you and I are doing similar work in the sense that we're doing the care and feeding of these entrepreneurs. And um, I feel a deep respect for the work that you do. And I thoroughly enjoyed the book, Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success.
Thank you, Tom. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. We often talk about the work of rebooting your leadership as individual work, you can't do alone. If each member of your leadership team is pursuing the work of self-inquiry and actualization, that's wonderful. But to create the company that you'd all like to work for, you must also create the opportunity for the collective to grow. Experiences like facilitated leadership groups, offsite retreats, organizational change explorations, and immersive leadership trainings move the organization closer to its fullest expression of the inherent values. At Reboot, we're here to support you and your team members in bringing forth the best that you have, using everything that emerges from organizational life, both the challenges and successes, as opportunities to grow. Head to Reboot.io slash team experiences to learn more and more about Reboot's virtual and in-person team offerings.